Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be together to worship. That's one expression of the body of Christ, isn't it? Sorry about that. So if you've got a copy of the Bible, either hardcover or electronic, you might want to open to 1 John, the little book of 1 John, or scroll over or whatever you do on your device to get to 1 John, and I'm going to read the text that we're going to cover this morning, at least in part, and then I want to pray for our message, and then after that, we'll jump right into God's Word together. So follow along. I'm going to start reading in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and I'm going to read through chapter 2, verse 2. So little section of verses filled with God's truth for us today. So follow along and let's read. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The word of the Lord, may he bless his word to our hearts. Join with me. Let's ask God to bless our time as we look into his word a little bit more deeply. And then we'll get right into our message for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we can come together. We thank you that you have blessed us to live in a nation and a state and a county and a city where we can gather together as one expression of Christ's church for the purpose of worshiping you, praising you, proclaiming your word, fellowshipping, ministering to one another. And we do so freely because you've granted us freedom. And as we're approaching Thanksgiving Day, we pray that you would help each and every one of us just be filled with thanks and give thanks back to you for the freedoms that we enjoy. Father, any of us could go downtown and pass out gospel tracts. We could go to a coffee shop and talk about Jesus. We can pray for our friends and neighbors. We can carry a Bible publicly. We can share your truth with other people. We can invite people to come to worship with us here at the church. All of those freedoms are because you've blessed us and all of those freedoms we're thankful for. And so fill us with thanksgiving as we approach Thanksgiving Day. There are so many other things that we could be thankful for. We are thankful most of all for your son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You sent him into the world, and he came willingly. He walked in the midst of sinful people. He got his feet dirty, his hands dirty. He ministered to the sick, to the dying, to the dead, to the lepers, to those that are broken by sin. He was tempted in every point like we are, yet he didn't sin. And then he allowed himself to be nailed to a Roman cross for the express purpose of bringing salvation and forgiveness of sin so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For that we're thankful. 
Help us give you thanks and praise this Thanksgiving season just for Jesus, for what he's done for us. Give us grace to thank each other for what we each mean in each of our lives. Father, we just pray that this Thanksgiving season will be a time where we as your people bless your name and forget not your benefits. Father, we also want to remember a conflict that's going on in our world. Uh, There's a huge conflict going on between Israel and Hamas and in the north, Israel and Hezbollah. And the nations that have power are talking and threatening. And all the while, there's this hot war happening where people are losing their lives all the time, every day, maybe every moment. We just ask you, Father, in your great mercy to put your hand on that situation and to keep the conflict from turning regional or even worldwide. We pray that you would prevent that. We pray that you would bring solution to the conflict. Father, we know that ultimately until Jesus comes back, there won't be total peace in the Middle East. So we pray for that. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come back. It would be nice if you came back right now and brought, brought peace to the Middle East and peace to our world. But we pray in the meantime that you, Father, in your sovereign power would bring this conflict to a close so that loss of life can cease, so that justice can be done. We just ask that you would do this. We pray that you would support your people, Israel. I want to pray specifically, too, for Israeli followers of Jesus Christ. I pray for my friend Guy Cohen. I pray for his wife. I pray for his congregation in Akko. I pray for other congregations like his, for Eitan Shishkov's ministry there. I just ask you, Father, give them courage and grace to give relief, humanitarian aid to both Arab and Muslim, Christians and non-Christians, to Israelis who are not believers and those that are, and that the love of Christ might shine through them so that they would have an opportunity to tell why they've put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Israel's Messiah. Please open those opportunities. And I also pray that you would keep them safe. Father, the last email I got simply said that they're preparing for war and those Christians are not necessarily going to be combatants, but some of them may be because they might be in the IDF. We just ask that you would give grace and spare life and cause your gospel to spread. Now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray for ourselves. Help us focus our mind on the task that's at hand. I believe that you've got a message for each and every one of us here this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would deliver it. I pray that you would give each of us ears to hear and hearts to obey. And then give me the ability to teach in such a way that Christ is glorified and your people are built up in their faith. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So recently, I was reading a short book by a pastor of old. Uh, That pastor's name is John Flavel. Some of you may have heard of him. Some of you maybe have not heard of him. But I was reading this short book by John Flavel about keeping keeping one's heart focused on God. That's what this little book is about. Keeping one's heart focused on God as a Christian. And on this subject, Flavel observed the following. And I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. 
he wrote, and I quote, The heart of man is his worst part before it be regenerate and the best afterwards. Pretty interesting. The heart of man is his worst part before it be regenerate and the best afterwards. It is the seed of principles and the fountain of actions. The eye of God is, and the eye of Christians ought to be principally fixed upon it. So he's calling believers to have a focus on their own hearts, right? But he then goes on to observe this, quote, The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God, and the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Here is what makes the way of life a narrow way and the gate to heaven a narrow gate. Unquote. Now, anyone who has become a Christian and all who are Christians know that John Flavel's observation here are true. John the Apostle and the writer of 1 John, John the Apostle, knew this, and it is safe to say that realizing this, his desire was that the Christian recipients of his first little letter remained in fellowship with God and remained in fellowship with themselves as they walked in the light. And we talked a little bit about that last Sunday. But the question is, why is, after conversion, the great difficulty keeping one's heart with God? And the reason is because after we become Christians, we find that while we desire to pursue our relationship with Christ, there are actually forces that constantly militate against us and try to trip us up, making it difficult for us to do that. Uh, There are forces that constantly try and pull us back into the old sin patterns of our lives, kind of like our muscles would do if we dislocated a shoulder. Now, I don't know if you've ever dislocated a shoulder. I have three times. I don't want to have that happen again. But the interesting thing is your shoulder's out of joint, but the muscles that held it in place are pulling, 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 trying to pull it back into joint. And it's really, really uncomfortable. And what happens when we're born again by the Spirit of God is that we are in fellowship with God, but that puts us out of joint with the world. And it puts us out of joint with sin, and it puts us out of joint with the old sin patterns that we walked in so easily before we came to know Christ. And this tension is what Paul references in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, where in the New King James Version, it says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I don't find. And we understand what he's saying. In his flesh, his fallen body, nothing good dwelt. He willed to do what was right, but how to do it, he had a hard time. And that caused a problem for him. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. It is a real, real conflict that every true Christian faces. To the extent that if and when we give in to our old sinful impulses, 
our fellowship with God is affected, and if we consistently give in to the old sinful impulses, our assurance of salvation is infected, but if we can effectively wage war against our flesh and the old sin patterns, then we walk in assurance and our fellowship with God is not affected at all. And as I said before, I'll say again, if you're Christians this morning, you have firsthand experience of this particular conflict that rages in your life. And so the question then is, how do we keep our heart with God? How do we keep our heart with God? How does a Christian live their faith in such a way so as to keep their heart focused on God, so as to maintain the assurance that they belong to Christ, so as to maintain fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we keep our hearts with God? How do we do that? And John actually answers this question for us in the verses that I read. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 through chapter 2, verse 2. And in these verses, he teaches us how we keep our hearts by laying down for us three practices which aid us in keeping our heart with God. And as we do that, it results in ongoing assurance of salvation, ongoing fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and so forth. And so what are these three practices? Well, I'm going to give you three words. When we get to each one of them, I'll build them out a little bit. But I've found that if I give a three-word outline, for those who take notes, it makes it a lot easier for them because I can just write those three words down, and they've got the outline, and then when I go into the detail, they can build it out. So here are the three words. The first is confess. The second is resist. And the third is rest. Pretty simple, huh? Confess, resist, and rest. So let's take these one at a time, all right? So if you're a Christian today, the first practice John teaches us, which aids us in keeping our heart with God, is confess. Confess what? Confess sin. Notice verse 9 of of, of chapter 1. We looked at it last week. I'm going to look at it again in a little bit more detail. John wrote, if we confess our sins, he, that is God the Father, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that stands in contrast to verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so this first practice is confess. Confess sin. Confession of sin has always been a spiritual practice which keeps God's people in fellowship with him. In fact, we might say that confession of sin could be classified as a classic spiritual discipline. And the interesting thing is, confession of sin and our attitude towards sin, as I said last week, is one of the marks of a true believer versus someone that's not in Christ. We know that we're Christians because our attitude towards sin changed when we became a Christian. And so confession is kind of the outflow of that. And we talked about that already. 
But confession of sin, as I said, is a classic spiritual discipline. While the refusal to confess sin actually destroys fellowship with God, or it indicates that we've never been brought into fellowship with God in the first place. And so let me give you some examples about how confession of sin has always been a practice among the people of God. And how confession of sin maintains fellowship, a refusal to confess breaks fellowship with God. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 9 to 11, you have a negative example of this. Now, in Genesis chapter 4, we've got the story of Cain and his brother Abel. And we know that Cain was jealous of Abel, and so Cain murdered Abel. So when you get down to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9, the Lord God is interrogating Cain. And he asks him a question, where is your brother Abel? Now that was an opportunity for Cain to make a good confession. He could have said, well, my brother Abel's not here because, you know, Lord, I killed him. That's not what he did. He basically said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And so what happens there is that when given an opportunity to come clean with God, and God, by the way, already knew that Cain had killed Abel, Cain chose not to, and the Lord basically said, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And at that point, he pronounces a curse on Cain, and so Cain, refusing to confess, is cursed and lived as a cursed man all the days of his life. That's Genesis chapter 4. You can read, read it for yourself. And so as I said, a refusal to confess sin destroys fellowship with God, and it can even bring us total alienation from God as it did from Cain. Now, here's some positive examples from the Old Testament. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 5, and you read verse 5, you'll read about how when an Israelite who sinned came to offer a sacrifice for his or her sin, that Israelite was to place their hands on the animal being sacrificed and confess their sins to the Lord. And confession of sin restored fellowship with God for these individual Israelites who committed sin and needed to then go and through the sacrificial system maintain their rightness with God because they were in covenant with God as Israelites but sin broke fellowship with God. That's Leviticus chapter 5, verse 5. If you fast forward from there to Leviticus 16, 21, you have another picture of confession, but this time it's confession not for individual sins, but for the sin of a nation. And in Leviticus chapter 16, the theme is the day of atonement, and in the 21st verse, we have the high priest placing his hand on the scapegoat and confessing Israel's sins. Now, why would that be necessary? Because as a nation, Israel could be out of fellowship with their covenant gods. 
And the Day of Atonement was established in order to maintain fellowship between Israel, the covenant people, and the covenant God. That's what you've got in Leviticus 16.21. In order that the nation of Israel would be kept in fellowship with God. That's what the Day of Atonement was for. Now, if you fast forward and you get into the Psalms, the psalmists give us illustrations of confession. And I want to show you one. Take a look at Psalm chapter 32 really quickly. Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verse 1. The psalmist writes, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then verse 3, the psalmist wrote, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with fever, the fever heat of summer. What's going on there? The psalmist, David, had passed through a time when he had some sin in his life and he kept silent about it. And if I want to use contemporary terms, I could say that he was experiencing some psychosomatic ailments in his body because of his refusal to confess his sin. You know, guilt can do that to a person. Guilt can result in affliction of body, and the affliction of body is simply the physical outworking of affliction of soul that's afflicted by guilt because of sin that a person is walking in. That's what David's talking about here. He was having physical ailment because of his sin. My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. And then in verse 4 it says, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Pretty graphic, huh? So what did he do to remedy that? Well, look at verse 5 and 6. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. Now that's a cry from the heart of one who was bearing a load of sin, who confessed it, was blessed by the forgiveness that came to him from God, and then he calls on everyone else to walk in a similar pattern. There's another reference in Psalms that I'll give you the verse for. You can read it yourself, but it's in Psalm 38 and verse 18. Just another example like the one I just gave. And then in Proverbs, Proverbs encourages us if we are people of God to be confessors of sin. And so if you take a look at Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, you find these words. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. When we refuse to 
confess our transgressions, prosperity is not going to come our way. And you've got to realize that from a spiritual perspective, the first place where we will cease to prosper will always be as Christians in our relationship with God the Father. The next place, as we mentioned last week, is that we will cease to prosper in our fellowship with other believers in Christ. And we will also cease to prosper in our connection with God's church. And I could develop that one line because there are a lot of other ways that we'll cease to prosper. Sin tends to bring destructive things into the lives of those who walk in it as a, part, as a, as a habit. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you have a sin that you refuse to let go of and you persist in it, it will have a negative effect on you as well. And it will bring chastening from the Father because every son or daughter that the Father loves, Hebrews chapter 12 says, the Father chastens to correct, to bring us out of a path of sin and back into fellowship with him. That's another discussion. But look at the second half of the proverb. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Now listen, in that little one line, there's repentance and confession and by default forgiveness. What is repentance? Repentance is turning from sin and walking in another direction. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The forsaking of sin is the repentance of sin. And the confession of sin is to admit to God and maybe to other people that you have this problem with sin. So concealing versus confessing is contrasted. And when we conceal our sin, we don't prosper while confessing and forsaking sin brings compassion to us from God the Father. It also brings compassion to us from other people. When I confess a sin to a brother in Christ, I have never failed but to be accepted and to be prayed for and I've never experienced rejection because I sin sometimes, maybe a lot. And so that's what Proverbs is talking about there, right? And so confession of sin has always been a spiritual practice which keeps God's people in fellowship with him, but it also keeps God's people in fellowship with one another in a more corporate way. So from these examples we see that when John says to us that if we confess our sins, he, the Father, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, John provides for us a practice that's designed to keep our hearts with God that's designed to keep our hearts in fellowship with God, that's designed to keep our hearts in fellowship with one another. And so then a couple of questions arise when we start thinking about this practice of fellowship. Um, here are the questions that we need to answer uh, at this point. It's talking about confessing sin. Well, if you don't know what sin is, you don't know what to confess, right? And so the first thing we have to ask is, what is sin? If we don't know, we can't confess, or we may find ourselves confessing things we don't need to confess. Have you ever had a person do that? Hey, I just want to, I got to make a confession to you, and they say something to you, 
and I did this and stuff like that. This happens to me sometimes, and I will say to them, well, I'm not sure why you're confessing that because <laughs> that wasn't really sinful and it didn't bother me anyway. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes people with an oversensitive conscience can be confessing things they don't need to confess. And then brothers or sisters, with a conscience that's not been tuned to the word, might not know what to confess. So what is sin? That's the first question. Now here's the second question. When John says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we go about that? How should that take place in real life? Should we confess publicly? Privately? Only to God? To God and others? Only to others? And so those are two foundational questions. If we want to be found to be people who are practicing what John says in that ninth verse of chapter one. And so let's take these two questions one at a time. What is sin? Well, if you look over to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, we have a very simple definition of what sin is. That verse, chapter 3, verse 4 of 1 John says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And then it says sin is lawlessness. So sin is when we live contrary to the law of God. It's very simple. So that's a simple definition off the pages of Scripture. Now, I can give you a more detailed and definitive uh, definition. It comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Does anybody know what the Westminster Confession of Faith is? If you do, you kind of slip up your hand. If you don't know, it doesn't matter. How about the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689? Have you ever heard of that? Probably not. Nobody's raising their hands. A couple of people have. Well, listen, these are confessions of faith or catechisms that come from days gone by. And the catechism was a teaching tool that was really designed to disciple new believers or children. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith became the doctrinal standards of the Reformed churches in England, particularly the Presbyterian Church uh, in Scotland and um, the longer and shorter catechism were teaching tools that were designed to help parents or pastors disciple believers in the faith. So, for example, uh, the shorter catechism, the first question is, um, what is the sole purpose of man? And the answer is, uh, man's sole purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the first question of the shorter catechism. Now, in the larger catechism, question 24 is, what is sin? What is sin? Here's how the catechism answers. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creatures. What's a reasonable creature? You are. I am. I used to have a pet chocolate lab. She would not be considered a reasonable creature. <laughs> she was a great dog. 
but had no concept of sin or righteousness. Because animals don't, right? So sin affects reasonable creatures. Now, you and I are reasonable creatures. We have a reason, and we know the difference between right and wrong. We know the difference between right and wrong because God has written it on our hearts, and we know the difference between right and wrong as Christians because we have the word of God. And so let me read that again. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. Now, Scripture shows that there are sins of commission, and there are also sins of omission. Sins of commission, things we do that we shouldn't, and sins of omission, things that we should do that we don't. And just these definitions say to all of us, without external help, we're toasted, right? If you happen to not be a Christian this morning, um, you have a sin problem, there's only one remedy, that's Jesus Christ. Uh, If you want to know more about that, we can talk later, but as Christians, uh, we still can commit sins of omission and sins of commission, things we do that we shouldn't, things we fail to do that we should. So for some, for some examples, when we covet, but we are told not to, we commit sin. I have an iPhone. Maybe you have a flip phone. If you begin to look at my iPhone and say, man, I want it. I wish I had it. I got to figure out a way to get it. Even if I've got to go in debt to buy one. You're coveting. That's a sin of commission, Right? When you're driving down the street or you're walking in Costco and you get into a conversation with someone and the Holy Spirit prompts you because they've said something about spiritual life to talk to them about how you've come to know Jesus Christ. Or when you're driving down the road and you see someone with a sign, a homeless person, and it just so happens that at this time the Holy Spirit prompts you to go back and talk to them and you don't, that would be a sin of omission. You know in your heart I should do this, but I don't. I've done that before with people who were in need and I chose not to help them or people that the Lord was laying on my heart to share the faith with and I chose not to. Um, Those are the types of sins. So confession of sin then would be confession of sin, whether of commission or omission, that we are aware of, that we are aware of. We're not accountable for sins we're not aware of as Christians. And as I said last week, I'll say again, I could read verse 9 of chapter 1 like this. If we confess our sins that we know of, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That all unrighteousness, as I said, I'll say again, are all those things we're not aware of. How could the Father do that? Because we're in Christ. And I'll show you more about that as we move through the text. So that's what confession of sin is about. And to have a clear understanding learned from Scripture than what constitutes sin. So if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, there are a list of do's and don'ts, and they are known as the ten suggestions. You know that's not true. They're known as the ten commandments. And that defines what's right and wrong before the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you to recite for me the Ten Commandments as an individual Christian, 
Can you do it? That's an important question because it does set a standard of righteousness and wrongness that the Lord gave to the Israelites. You know, as a side note, it's interesting. A lot of Christians bemoan the fact that the Ten Commandments have been banished from the public schools. And then if I hear someone waxing eloquent about that and how, man, it's so terrible. They took the Ten Commandments out of the public schools and out of the public squares. And I say to them, you're a believer, right? And they say, yeah. I said, can you tell me what the Ten Commandments are? Can you quote them for me right now? And they look at me and say, uh, God helps those who help themselves. That's not even in the Bible. That's just a side note. You can thank me later. Um, It's ludicrous to bemoan the fact that the Ten Commandments have been banished from the public arena when you as a Christian cannot even recite them yourself. Learn what they are. They're a standard of righteousness. Galatians 5, 19 to 21 Take a look over there. I want to show you some things that are said in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Verse 16 in Galatians 5, Paul wrote, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit that we sung about earlier, which are in verse 22 and 23, will begin to be more and more characteristic of you. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, verse 17. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, verse 19 and 20 and 21 are important. Listen to this. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident which are. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How do I know what sin is in my life? If I read through that and ask myself, do I ever fall into these things sometimes? One of them, two of them, five of them, ten of them. Then that would tell me that I've got something that I need to confess. As a Christian. Because walking in sin as a Christian affects my fellowship with God and affects my fellowship with other believers. Look back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now what Paul's going to do is that he lists actions, activities, and attitudes that are considered by God unrighteous. Right? Here they come. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Such were some of you, verse 11, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And when we take that text and we take it as a whole, it says something to those that are not Christians. Any and all of those activities or things like those things are things considered unrighteous before a holy God. And so if you are not a believer and that's your sin pattern, all that does is that it says to you that you need a Savior to deliver you from the power of that one or multiple sins that you're struggling with. That's if you're not a Christian. What if you are a Christian? Well, Paul says, such were some of you, but now you've been washed, justified, sanctified by the power of our God. And what that means is the penalty for those types of sins we don't bear anymore because Jesus Christ died and rose again, paying the penalty for our sins so that through faith in Christ, we've been made right with God. But if one or more of those things listed as unrighteousness was a pattern of sin before you became a Christian, it can raise its head again and try to pull you back into practicing it. And sometimes it succeeds. So what do you do if it succeeds? That would be something that you need to confess, right? And so these are examples of how we know what sinful activity or attitudes are. Um, to really walk in this and develop the discipline of confession, we can pray with the psalmist the request in Psalm 139, 23, and uh, 24. Are you familiar with what that is? Let me read it to you really quickly. Psalm 139, the psalmist ends with a prayer, and that prayer is a prayer that periodically any wise Christian will practice. Periodically, I practice it, and it's designed to keep me in tune with things that I may be walking in that are displeasing to God. Search me, O God, and know my heart, Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You want to know what the sin patterns are in your life that the Father would have you be confessing even though you're a Christian already? Begin to pray this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. You know what? Our hearts, even though we are born again, can trick us really easily. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful or harmful way in me. Show me who I am. Keep me in touch with who I really am all the time. I know I belong to you. I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I don't live my faith out perfectly. Search me because I want to maintain fellowship with you and I don't want my fellowship with you to be broken. Here's another example. How many of you know the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Are you aware of people that maybe you trespassed against? Sometimes you are, sometimes maybe not. But you know, in praying this, the Lord can actually use it if you ask him, Father, 
I don't want to have any open-ended issues with anybody. And so if there's someone that I'm not forgiving who's trespassed against me, can you reveal it to me? Sometimes the Father does. Let me give you a personal example. In praying this, I actually was asking God to reveal to me if there was anyone that I was withholding forgiveness from. And you say, well, if you're withholding forgiveness from somebody, you know it. Well, yeah, you do initially. But you know, the thing about it is, if you continue to withhold forgiveness from somebody, there can come a point where your heart kind of crusts over, and you deny it, and you push it aside. And then once you're into that denial phase, you can kind of turn your back on it and ignore it, right? And so I would pray and ask the Father to reveal to me, is there anybody that I'm withholding forgiveness from? You know what was interesting? Uh, Two names of people that I had not forgiven came to mind. Two men. Two men. What was the issue? Both of them had left our church. It wasn't they had left West Hills. People leave churches all the time. It's the way they left. It was the way they left. And the way I framed it to my friends about one of them is, after being pled with to stay, he kicked us in the chest verbally and walked out the door. You ever had that experience? Two names came to mind. I realized I was withholding forgiveness from those two brothers. They didn't know it. They didn't know it. But I knew it. Because they had offended me. And so what did I do? Well, I confessed to the Lord. You're right, Father. I'm withholding forgiveness from these two brothers. And I sat down and I wrote each of them a note and I confessed to them that based on the way that they'd left the church, I had harbored a grudge against them and I had been harboring unforgiveness toward them. And the Lord had convicted me of that and I was confessing it to them and asking them to forgive me for harboring unforgiveness against them. That's what I wrote them. Now at that point, my heart was clear. So it's interesting, uh, one met me afterwards. He contacted me and said, let's get together. The other didn't want to meet with me, never did contact me, and that was fine. I said in the note, you don't have to contact me. I'm writing you this to clear my heart. And so if you choose not to talk to me about it, that's totally fine. But the one guy met me afterwards. We cleared our relationship. That was in the providence of God because soon after he moved to Texas with his family and he contracted COVID and he went home to be with the Lord. And he and I had reconciled. And that was so sweet. So this is a little bit about confession. I want to challenge you to do this. Um, this is going to get personal now. Um, in light of the troubles that have happened at Grace Bible Church over the years. Is there anyone that formerly was here that's not, that you harbor unforgiveness toward? Ask the Lord to show you. Pray about it. Seek his face. Maybe they wronged you. If they wronged you, go and tell them their fall between you and them alone. Or maybe they didn't, but you just upset that they left and you harbor unforgiveness. Pray about it, and as the Lord reveals what he reveals, if he reveals anything, then follow through and confess that to the Father and extend forgiveness. Now, knowing what sin is, we should ask, how do we confess? Publicly, privately, to others, to God alone? Let me give you this and then we'll close. 
as a general rule, secret heart sins should be confessed to God alone. That's what Psalm 32, 5, and 6 talks about. So if you have a secret heart sin, you don't need to stand up and say it to everybody. Confess it to God alone. Um, Sins against people should be confessed to God as well as to the person sinned against. And that's what Matthew chapter 5, 23 to 24 addresses. What about public sins? Public sins should be confessed to God and confessed publicly. And the best biblical example of a public confession is when you read Psalm 51. You know what Psalm 51 is? Psalm 51 is David's confession of his sin with Bathsheba that involved adultery, conspiracy to murder, and it resulted in the death of an innocent man. That's what Psalm 51 is about. Did David confess publicly when he was here on this earth? Well, he wrote Psalm 51. It found its way into the hymn book of Israel. And David has been confessing that sin publicly for two millennia plus to everybody that reads of that particular sin. Finally, corporate sin should be confessed to God, either individually or corporately. And I'll give you a couple of references that you you can look up on your own. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 is an example of the prophet Daniel confessing the sins of his people to God. And as he confessed the sins of his people to God, God gave him revelation about what was going to happen to his people Israel from the time of the captivity moving forward. Now, we don't confess the sins of our people because we want to get some special revelation. But we confess the sins of our people so that God might have mercy on our nation. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 2 is an example of a whole gathering of Israelites confessing corporately the corporate sins of Israel that had brought about the captivity. And the people in Nehemiah were those who had come back from the captivity and they found themselves in the land and they confessed the sins of their fathers because they did not want to go into captivity anymore. Confession of sin is the first practice John gives to us in order to keep our hearts with God. In order to continue to enjoy fellowship with God and to continue to have assurance of our salvation and fellowship with one another for a mark of a true Christian's faith is always seen in one's attitude towards sin. So if you're a Christian, by God's grace, develop, 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 develop a robust practice of personal confession if you haven't done so already. Now, there are two more practices designed to aid us in keeping our hearts with God. And I'm going to have to cover those week after next, but let me give, you, give them to you really quickly. The first one is in 1 John 2, verse 1. And the word that I gave to that one was resist. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That should be the goal of every Christian life. It's not to sin anymore. Come week after next, and I'll unpack that. What's the second one? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And the word that goes with that principle is rest. So here are the three principles to keep our hearts. Confess, resist, rest. 
And as we walk in those truths, our hearts will stay with God. We'll cover those other two week after next. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we could be together and sing praises to you and remember some of the great things you've done. We thank you that we have opportunity also to love each other and to minister to one another and to use our gifts to serve one another. We thank you that we could go through that section of Scripture and just unpack this whole thing about confessing sin. My prayer now is that you would seal these truths to each of our hearts. I pray for myself and also my brothers and sisters that you would help all of us to continue building a robust discipline of confession of sin so that we maintain fellowship with you and keep our hearts focused on you and maintain fellowship with one another. I also want to pray for the congregation here. I know that there has been much trouble over the years. I just ask that you would help the congregation that was here when those troubles took place to be humble. And if there's any remaining unforgiveness, that you would give grace that that might be dealt with. Help us talk to people that have something against us or we against them. And as we confess, fill us with your spirit and empower your church to be all the church is intended to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would like to close us with some verses out of Jude. Jude is a little one-chapter book, and the 24th and 25th verse is a very fitting close. And so this is our benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you as you go through this Thanksgiving week. Have a good day in the Lord.